Welcome to Leadership Revealed, where John Paul shares his no-nonsense approach to all things leadership and scaling businesses. John interviews some of the most successful people in their industries to see what it takes to become a great leader. Be prepared for the truth about leadership and business. Please welcome your host, serial entrepreneur and top-selling author, John Paul. Hi everyone, uh, John Paul here and welcome to another edition of Leadership Revealed. The title of this episode is Do You Plan to Fail? Now hopefully you won't actually plan to fail, You won't. that won't be the main mission of what you want to achieve, but by not having a plan you are inadvertently planning to fail. Now what do I mean by that? The majority of successful people, or the, everybody I know who's success, whether it be business or, or sport or whatever, have a single plan. They're very, very devoted to what, what their vision is and how they're going to achieve it. But more importantly, they know what they're going to do on a day-to-day basis. Now, that doesn't mean that when things are thrown in their way that they don't, using a corporate terminology, pivot, or they don't know how to adapt, or they don't know how to bring other elements in to basically have a plan B or a plan C or a plan D even. The majority of good businesses, the ones that are certainly the ones that have been around for a while, have had plan B, C's, D's, E's, all the way through to Z's and, and possibly all the way around again. Now, I want to just talk a little bit about, I want to give you a couple of examples of some quite well-known brands that most of you will have heard of, some may not, that have actually pivoted and reinvented themselves and had a plan B or C. And also, I'm going to talk to you a couple about the ones who haven't had a plan B who've been, maybe I say, a little bit arrogant, a little bit, I'm too big to fail, too too huge to fail, and um, believe it or not, none of them are banks. And I just want to show you the uh, when people are, are sort of humble enough to understand and appreciate, and I recommend, uh, probably say that they're a little bit sort of visionary to understand where things aren't going to go well or, or whatever they need to do to, to sort of make a success of the business. And also ones who, again, are too arrogant. Now, before I do that, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the estate agency game or the the real estate industry. It's I know you should never say a date in these podcasts because it datifies your podcast and when it was, but this is the new year, January 2019, and in three or four months' time, in April 2019, we're going to have something called the tenant fee ban. Now, the tenant fee ban is exactly what it says, that we will not be allowed, in letting agents, we will not be allowed to charge any fees to tenants. It's yet to be 100% ratified and, and clarified as to what we can and what we can't do. But if the bill stays in its current format, there will be no admin fees, no um, upfront fees other than a, a deposit or a few little bits and bobs that we can charge tenants. Now, it is what it is. The purpose of the podcast is not to uh, chat about the, the rights or the wrongs of that tenant fee. The fact is we've known about it for quite a while now. Now, the mark of a good business or business person or leader in my business is that where they can they can dodge the punches and another boxing terminology, guys, or they can sort of sort of adapt and evolve their business to the ongoing changes of regulatory, um, you know, compliance, whatever it is, legislative in that business. So this this is a major major issue, and if you're depending on on how you operate your business, but I have heard it's up to twenty five to twenty six percent of people's income, bearing in mind that I would guesstimate, educated guess, albeit, but it is a guess, that most letting agencies and estate agencies are around about 10 to 15% net profit. And that's a pretty good business. You know, I know some big, big businesses that are around 5 to 
So when you take away 20%, 25% of your income, and bearing in mind maximum, the majority of agencies are making 15%, you are immediately insolvent. So we've known about this for 18 months now, and yet again, in January 2019, I've seen on several posts over the last couple of weeks, over Christmas, and one today, that somebody has said, what is this tenant fee ban that's coming in? When is it coming in, or what are you all doing? And these are letting agents, as well as landlords in our industry, that don't have a clue what they're going to do. It's frightening. It's the ostrich. It's digging your head in the sand, not appreciating what's going to happen and not understand the enormity of the task at hand and what we have to do. So bear in mind, this came out 16, 17 months ago. It was on a Sunday evening and it hit the press on a Monday morning. Straight away, Adele and I, my MD, had a meeting on the afternoon. We didn't sort of guess what it was going to happen. We didn't sort of say, well, what happens if we're allowed to keep this, if we're allowed to keep that? We just said, let's get rid of all upfront tenant fees. How does that affect us? And we were, because of the areas we operate, our business model, we were better than most. But still, it was 14% of our income. You tell somebody that 14% of your income is gone, and it will be gone overnight at some point in the near future. And bearing in mind, we didn't know if it was next week, next month, a year, 10 years. We didn't know if it was true. We didn't know if it was just hype. I mean, to be fair, we were 99 times out of 99% positive it was gonna it was gonna happen. It was just a matter of time. And again, over the forthcoming weeks and months, we had various people in the, the industry saying, oh, it won't happen, they can't do that. And then here we are over a year down the line, it's got cross parties and support. I believe it was the second or the third reading. Went through in 18 seconds in the House of Commons. Put it in perspective, it went through quicker with more support than the tourism bill. So that just tells you how strong the MPs feel about this. And again, it's not the purpose of the podcast to, de- uh, to determine the right or, or wrong of the vote or the bill. It's just to, do, to give you an idea of how you should change and adapt your business model to suit. So 14% of our income was was admin fees. So that was on the Monday that we we got all the the income together. Sorry, we got all the figures together. We discussed this with our um, accounts director and we said, right, that is where we are, 14%. How are we going to replace it? There's only three things you can do. You can increase your fees to your customer, not the most popular, but maybe necessary, or you can pass on part of those costs. You can get more of more customers, so that's the prospecting aspect of it. And then we're driving more business and we're prospecting. We, we, we started to tweak and fine-tune our prospecting machine. Or you can reduce your costs, and we did so accordingly. So pretty much in the next week or two, got all our costs, went to all our supplies. What can we do to reduce this? Can we consolidate? We've got five photocopies with you. If we, if we give you the other three, what, what sort of a deal can you do? Um, we changed telephone supplies to reduce our costs. We went back to board suppliers. We got them knocked down only a pound, only pound fifty per board. But over the year, it might be five thousand pound. All all adds up. So pretty much, we knew that where we were and what we had to get to. As of three months to go, we are four point nine, four point eight percent of our turnovers are ten fee costs, which is exceptional from fourteen percent four point eight. We are still, believe it or not slightly behind where we need to be. We want to reduce it down to uh, 2.5%. We're on target to get it down to 3%, but it's still not going to be where we where we want it to be. Don't get me wrong, 3% from 14% is 
is extraordinary. It's, it's the highest in our industry that I've heard of. However, it's still not where we wanted to be. What I want to talk to you about is there was a huge, huge issue in our industry. There was something that was going to shut the agency down. We acted on it on day one. So on the Monday, we had a, we understood what the, the severity of the situation was. And by the Friday, we had, we had a plan and we knew what we were going to do. And by the following Monday, i.e. a week later, it was implemented. And everybody in the business knew what their small part was to play in the grand scheme of things to try and reduce 14.9% to down to, round down to 2.5%. And as I said, we're there or thereabouts on it. So you need a plan when something happens. So um, when an environmental or a legislative or, or something political, whatever happens outside your industry that is completely it's out of your hands, there's nothing you can do about it. The worst thing you can do is to stick your head in the sand. You need to adapt and evolve and come up with a plan B, C, D um, as quick as you possibly can. So I want to give you a couple of examples of, of companies that have adapted and changed, pivoted, again, that corporate word, and they've done it a good effect. Most of you, if you're, if you're ladies out there listening, you will have heard of Tiffany & Co. So it's the bluey green, turquoise, I'm not exactly sure what colour it is, a bit colourblind, but the kind of jewellery store, very, very high-end jewellery store. They didn't start out selling jewelries. They started off selling stationery, believe it or not. So that is a brilliant example of a company that sell, sold, started selling a low, low price product, increased its value, increased its brand, and now is probably one of the most famous jewellery stores on the planet. So again, it's, it's changed its business model completely to where it is now. Avon is another one. It's one of the world's largest makeup sellers, on the, again, on a global scale. They started selling books. So when the guy started selling um, uh, books, he couldn't get in. He was getting a lot of doors slammed in his face. There's a lot of stay-at-home uh, mums and mothers that were at home. And I'm not interested. I don't want to, I've got time to read. I'm, I've got kids. I'm, I'm a home uh, worker, home wife. Um, so he started giving away free bottles of perfume with his books so they, they would open the door, they would buy the books, found out that people were more bothered and interested in the perfume. So he ditched the books, got into um, a perfume, expanded his repertoire and his product line into, uh, into makeup, and the rest is the series history. Very, very, very successful. You look at Nokia, they started out as a paper mill back in 1865, and they're one of the, the companies that are on an example of where companies adapted and changed but they're also on the other list, which is where a company has refused to adapt and change. And it's one of the dubious titles of being on both, both lists. But again, Nokia started in 1865, and believe it or not, there wasn't too many phone mobile phones around back in them days, but it was a paper mill based in Finland. Shell started in 1860, and that was a guy, a chap called Marcus Samuel, and he started off selling antiques. And what Marcus Samuel did is he specialised in the selling of um, shells, hence why Shell or SO, uh, Shell Dutch has got uh, it's that yellow shell with the, the red outline, and that's where they get their logo from. But again, they started selling antiques out of, a, out of a store, one particular store, and he's evolved or he grew that business into the massive petroleum giant that it is today. So, some ones that haven't um, evolved very well and didn't adapt. I want to talk about Kodak. We all know that. But I'm not sure if you knew that Kodak invented the first digital camera. Now, what was really, really surprising about that 
is that they had this digital camera, but it was a it was filmless photography. So the their management's reaction was, yeah, that's really good, that's cool, we like it. It's a bit of a a one off, but don't tell anybody about it. Um, so Steve Sasson was a Kodak engineer, and he was the chap that invented this camera back in '75. And he said that the leaders or the management team in Kodak failed to see that digital photography was going to be a disruptive technology moving on. So the second one is Nokia. So that again, that was on the original list of ones that have pivoted, but this is a, a prime example where it hasn't. And they they were very, very arrogant. So they believed they were so big that they could arrive late to the phone party, if you like, and that they would still make waves. But remember, it was back in 2007, Steve Jobs launched the first iPhone and they came and they thought, oh, wow, that's a, that's a touchscreen technology. Um, iPhone started selling phenomenally well. They thought they could come um, to, to the party back in 2008 and they decided to compete with Android, but it's too late. Their products weren't competitive enough. They hadn't been in the market long enough. They weren't up to date with it. They weren't up to speed. They didn't have the expertise or the knowledge or the experience. And then, um, you know, finally it was it was far too late. And there's, been, there's a really good article called uh, Where Nokia Went Wrong, and that's a New York article um, by James Serowiecki. So if you want to have a look at that, Serowiecki, um, it's an excellent article um, to have a read. Then we've got Blockbuster. Now, this is probably one of the most famous ones, but when you, you listen to how many chances they had, it will absolutely blow your mind the arrogance of the leadership and management of that company. So they were at the peak in 2004. They'd survived the change from VHS to DVD. They had evolved a little bit and they started selling DVDs and computer games for, um, you know, the various computer consoles out there. But they didn't get into streaming. So while Netflix was shipping DVDs to their consumers' homes, Blockbusters figured or they thought that their physical stores were going to be grand enough to please their customers. And because they'd been a leader in their market, which is rental videos for so long, they didn't see why they change their strategy. A little bit arrogant. But what you might not know is back in 2000, the founder of Netflix was a chap called Reed Hastings. He proposed a partnership to the former CEO of Blockbuster, a chap called John Antioco. And Netflix wanted Blockbuster to advertise their brand in stores. So while Netflix would run the Blockbuster online brand, Blockbuster could have their physical stores. Blockbuster just said, we don't want to do anything online. They actually had an, an opportunity to run that all of, or Netflix had an opportunity, a proposed opportunity to run all of Blockbuster's online videos, DVDs, films, streaming, and Blockbuster said no. He thought it was an antique that said it was a niche business, and he didn't really think that it was actually going to go anywhere. So unfortunately, in 2010, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy, and Netflix is now a $30 billion company. And just to put it in perspective, we have, I, I bought a commercial property from Blockbuster, and one of our branches is in it, and we actually rent another business, um, rent another commercial premises from Blockbuster, or from former Blockbuster, and uh, we run one of our branches in it. The Blockbuster littered the high street with empty premises for, for quite a while. Now, Yahoo, this is probably the one, more, one of the most incredible stories where it had at least two, possibly three opportunities to get out of the, the trouble or the mire or the issues that it was in. And it was literally like somebody saying, there's a life 
vest do you want it no there's another life vest do you want it no there's another life vest no at least two major major opportunities where yahoo was given the hand hand up help up to safety and it refused um so it was back in 2005 it was one of the major major players in the online advertising market but yahoo didn't want to get into search engines it just wanted to be immediate giant so what happened is when they made the, the decision to become more of a media giant, it means that they neglected the customer trends and they didn't think that improving the, the user experience on a search engine was important. So people started migrating from Yahoo, away from Yahoo, and as we know, they started going towards um, Google. So basically, Yahoo contributed to the success of, of Google, but it also massively contributed to its, to its own downfall. But Yahoo also missed out on a huge amount of opportunities that could have saved them. So a good example is 2002, they almost had a deal to buy Google, but the CEO of Yahoo refused to go with, go through with the deal. I bet he's ruined that now, especially as Google is the first trillion dollar company and and um, Jeff Bezos is now officially the world's richest man with $112 billion worth. And also in 2006, as if the, that one wasn't bad enough, Yahoo had a deal to buy Facebook. Right, But when Yahoo, at the last minute, lowered their offer, Mark Zuckerberg backed out, as you would when somebody had, had, had done that to you. It's a little bit of a dirty trick. So if the company had taken a few additional risks, it wouldn't be in the, the situation where it is now. Um, again, there's a really, really good article from Harvard Business Review I'm a massive fan of called The Decline of Yahoo in its own words. So there's a few examples of companies that have had a plan B, plan C, plan D, various iterations of of the company, and there's some examples of some real arrogant, head in the sand, stuck in the old ways, examples of companies that just would not move, wouldn't change or adapt or evolve its business. You don't choose to adapt your business based on you, you choose to adapt your business based on two things. The change in your customers and their wants and desires, and also the environment. The environment may be completely out of your, your hands. It might have nothing to do with your customers. It might be new legislation, regulation, compliance that comes in, forces you to change and um, show your hand and change your business model. But also, if you don't listen to your customers and you don't listen to what they want, then your customers will be looked after and serviced by your competitors. So it's incredibly important to look at two things. Talk to your customers, see what they want, but also look at the environment and try and predict the future. If you have a look at the estate agency world and the letting agency, it's cl it's crystal clear where we're going. We'll go more compliance. We'll go more legislation, more regulation. Get your ducks in a row now. Get everything aligned so that when the, the, the regulation comes in, the compliance comes in, that you're already ahead of your game. Make sure that the smaller agents that get closed down, that's a perfect opportunity for you to acquire them, merge with them. The, when this tenant fee ban comes in, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds estimated over a thousand agencies that are not going to last, they're not going to survive. It's going to be thousands of people, four to five thousand people out of a job. You can pick and choose the best ones. Guess what that's going to do? That's going to improve your standard of your staff, your recruitment, your training and development, your management, make you a better leader. So again, you're going to benefit from that. Picking up little portfolios of 20, 30, 40, 50 houses, that's going to be brilliant. It's going to add to your income. There's going to be Businesses, two, three, four, five branches that have just said, do you know what? I've been in this game 30 years. I've had enough. I want out. Do you want to acquire me? Again, these opportunities are going to be all around you. 
But what you can't do is you can't predict these opportunities. But what you can do is predict where the industry is going. Don't stick your head in the sand. Keep it above the parapet. Have a 360 vision. Look at where you are, where you want to get to. And if there's going to be environmental factors stopping you, or if there's going to be any customer-related factors stopping you, speak to your customers. Be vigilant and be open to uh, any changes in your market. As always, guys, thanks very much for listening to this edition of Leadership Revealed, and I'll see you on the next one.